turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 18, where we left off last week, which puts us to verse 28. John 18 and verse 28. I'm going to read it, but before I do, I'm going to provide a little historical context to this passage. These are things that it will be helpful to keep in mind as we hear this passage and as we think about it. This is a historical context uh, that helps us to place this story in the larger context. So first of all, keep in mind that this, when this happens, this is the week of Passover and that we are in the city of Jerusalem. That means that pilgrims from all over, from the Jewish diaspora, that means the spreading out of the Jewish people, they come back to the city of Jerusalem. And that means that the population of the city swells many times its normal size. And because of that, the Roman government always increases security in the city of Jerusalem during Passover because you get that many people there consolidated in one place, you don't know what's going to happen. And that is why Pilate is in the city of Jerusalem at this time. Pilate doesn't live in Jerusalem. His presence as governor is required in Jerusalem during Passover for security purposes. All right, the other historical thing that we need to know is that Pilate has a history of having to deal with angry Jewish mobs. If you study the, the rule of Pilate, if you read about Pilate in other historical writings besides the Bible, you find out that he was prefect of Palestine for 11 years from the years A.D. 26 to A.D. 37, crucial years. During that time, a few things happened between himself and the Jewish people. One time, Pilate had the audacity to set up a statue of the emperor in the city of Jerusalem. That's the holy city, and the people of Jerusalem didn't appreciate a statue of the emperor there. And a huge crowd marched over to Pilate's palace in Caesarea, and they staged a protest in front of Pilate's palace for five days, protesting that statue. Pilate threatened to kill them, and they said, basically, fine, you can kill us if you want, we'd rather die than have that statue in our city. That statue does not honor God, and so you need to get rid of it, and if you need to kill us, then go ahead. Pilate relented and took the statue down. Another time, Pilate took money from the temple treasury in order to build an aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem. Right? He basically said, look, it's your water. You need water in Jerusalem. I'm going to use your money from your temple to pay for it. Again, the Jewish people protested. This time, Pilate did put down their protest with force, and many people were killed. Another time, there was a clash between Pilate and the Jews, and it resulted in the slaughter of a number of Galileans. So all of that to say, Pilate has a history of conflict with the Jewish people prior to this story that we're about to read. Pilate is very aware of how dangerous a Jewish mob can be. He's experienced that firsthand. So especially during the week of Passover when so many Jewish people are concentrated in one place. He wants to be very careful not to unnecessarily offend them. He wants to be very mindful not to start a riot on a massive scale. 
right? That's what he's there for. The reason Pilate is in Jerusalem is to keep things calm, to keep things under control, okay? That's the background here. Pilate is in Jerusalem to keep things under control, and now he gets this situation thrown into his lap, okay? Now we can read it. John 18, starting in verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them, and he asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Right? He doesn't want to get involved. But, but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. Now this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death that he was going to die. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. Now what is it that you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. And with this he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. You want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Holy Father, thank you that we've come again to your word. Thank you that when we read your word with believing hearts, that we hear your voice speaking to us. Thank you that your word never changes, but that it endures forever. Thank you that your word is truth. Thank you that we don't have to wonder or guess about whether or not you're a truth-speaking God. You are and you do. Lord, I pray that the comfort that comes from knowing that your word is true would come home to settle in our hearts and would provide nourishment and encouragement and strength. I pray that you'd help us to understand your word. I pray that you would help us to believe your word. And I pray that you would help us to live according to it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're told that the council brings Jesus to Pilate, lays their charges against him. In other gospel accounts of the same event, we learn that the charge the council brings to Pilate is not exactly the same charge that they convicted him of the night before. Last night, 
They were trying to prove that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. It was a theological trial. But here they tell Pilate that Jesus is claiming to be king of the Jews. So they're framing their case in a purposefully political way. King of the Jews. Because Pilate is a political ruler. The council knows Pilate does not care if Jesus is a religious leader. Pilate does not care if Jesus is making theological claims. He doesn't care. It's none of his business. The thing that would bother Pilate is if Jesus is making political claims. If Jesus is trying to usurp political power, that's going to be a problem for Pilate. And so they tell Pilate that Jesus is claiming to be king of the Jews. And Pilate turns to him and looks at him. Now remember, I don't know what, what scene you're picturing right now, but remember when Pilate turns and looks to Jesus, Jesus has been up all night, he's been spit on, and he's been beaten already. He doesn't look like a king. He's not wearing a crown. He's not wearing nice clothes. He doesn't look put together right now. He's had a long, hard, difficult night. And Pilate says, looks at him and says, Are you king of the Jews? It's a, it's a statement of mockery. He looks at Jesus, all disheveled and beat up and in bondage, and he says, You're a king? You're the king of the Jews? Because I've seen, I've seen kings before. I know what kings look like. And you don't look like a king. Jesus answers with a legitimate question. Not that, not that he, he doesn't know the answer. Obviously, Jesus knows the answer to his question already. But it's a, it's a legitimate question. He asks, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? The reason for the question is because it matters who's asking. If Pilate is asking... And if Pilate is asking a political question, well, then Jesus is not a king. Not in that sense of the word, not in the political sense of the word. He's not a king. But if the Jews are asking, then it's a theological question, in which case Jesus most definitely is king. He's king of the Jews. Which is why Jesus takes the opportunity to explain the difference between the two kingdoms. Right? He says, my kingdom... My kingdom is not of this world. It's not, it's, it's not from this world. Now, Pilate is still hung up on the idea that Jesus might be claiming to be a political king. So when he hears Jesus talk about kingdoms, he says, okay, so you are a king. And Jesus explains that, well, he is a king, but his kingdom is not of this world. He came from that kingdom to this world. And why did he come? Well, he tells us. This is one of the times in the Gospels when Jesus tells us why he came. He says, I came to bear witness to the truth. I came to bring the truth. I came to speak the truth. I came to embody the truth. I'm here to bear witness to the truth. Now think about the implications of that statement. He came from his kingdom to this world, and he came to bring the truth, to proclaim the truth, to bear witness to the truth. This is a, this is a cross-cultural exchange. Think of it that way, right? Two different cultures encountering one another. That whenever that happens, when two different cultures collide, it, it results in a cross-cultural exchange, 
right? You, you learn from one another, from the different cultures. You learn new ideas, new ways of looking at the world, and you also exchange perhaps goods that, that are present in your part of the world, in your culture, but not in this other, and there's an exchange that takes place, right? So for example, a classic, classic example from history of a, of a cultural exchange, for the, for the first 4,500 years of recorded history, since we've had recorded history, there was, there was no interchange of ideas or goods between uh, the West, or what, what was referred to as the New World, and the rest of the world. Right? And then, after all that time, explorers began crossing the Atlantic. And as a result, there was an interface between different cultures. There was an exchange an exchange of ideas, for sure, different ways of doing things, different ways of seeing things, but also an exchange of plants and livestock, right? That's referred to as the Columbian Exchange, when these plants and livestock, which had never cross-pollinated before, all of a sudden are being exchanged, right? So, for example, corn. Corn is native to Central America. Prior to that, corn wasn't grown in other parts of the world, but corn was taken from the New World and brought back and planted and cultivated in other parts of the world. In fact, corn revolutionized the economy in Africa after that. And bananas, which were native to Asia, were brought to the Americas, and it turns out bananas do very, very well in Central America. They thrived as a crop there. Same thing with some of the livestock. Pigs and horses had never been introduced in the Americas, but they were brought there and they thrived there. And uh, all of a sudden, after thousands of years of history, there was this cross-cultural interchange. It resulted in new crops and livestock being in new places that they were not native to. And they thrived in those contexts. Now, in some ways, the arrival of Jesus from his kingdom to our world is like that. The difference is that, in this case, the exchange only went in one direction. He didn't need anything. He didn't need to learn anything. His kingdom didn't lack anything. The world didn't provide him with anything. But he brought new things into this world. Things that are native to his kingdom, that originate in his kingdom. He brought them here to share with us. And one of the primary things he brought was the truth. I have come to this world to bear witness to the truth. Now what does that mean? It cannot mean that this world had no truth prior to the arrival of Jesus. It can't mean that. God had been sending prophets to preach the truth throughout the years. The people of God had the Old Testament scriptures already and they were true. I think what it means is that God is the source of all truth. And so to stick with the analogy, truth is a crop that is native to the kingdom of heaven. And to the extent that we have the truth here in this world, it's because that truth was imported and transplanted here from God. Okay, but here on earth, truth is not the only crop that grows. In fact, The crop that's native to this world, after Adam and Eve transgressed God's commandment, after the fall, the crop that's, 
that's native to this world is falsehood. So what, what happens is we've got these mixed fields of truth and falsehood in this world. And because of that, sometimes it's hard to discern what's true and what's not, right? We're barraged with information and assertions and propositions all the time. And how do we know what's true and what's it, what isn't? How do we navigate that? How do we discern that? Well, Jesus, the Son of God, came from his kingdom, which is the source of all truth, which is the place uh, where truth grows native and there is no falsehood. He came in order to bear witness to the truth so that we, citizens of this world, can know the truth and believe the truth and be set free by the truth. Jesus says that everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Right? He says that, and then, and then Pilate responds, well, what is truth? But he doesn't stick around long enough to hear the answer. It's one of the most, this is one of the most ironic moments in the whole Bible. Pilate is speaking with Jesus, who not only always speaks the truth, but literally who is the truth. He is the truth. He said, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Pilate is speaking with the truth, and he asked the right question. He says, well, what is truth? But he doesn't wait around long enough for the answer. So let's try to answer that question. What is, what is truth? Um, the word itself, aletheia, is, is, is the Greek word they're using there. It means literally the content of that which is true and thus in accordance with what actually happened. Right? That's what truth is. That which is true in accordance with reality, with what, with what really happened. The word is used in the Bible to refer to the revelation of God that Jesus brings, the truth. In that sense, it refers to Jesus himself, who is the true revelation of God. So things aren't more true or less true. That doesn't make sense. They're either true or they're not true. They're true or false. In order to be true, they need to be all the way true. And if they're half true, or a mixture of true and false, then they're false. But some truths are more important than others. Some truths matter more than others. It's true that it's March 5th today. Uh, it's true that I had pizza for dinner last night. Lots of things are true, uh, but they don't really matter much. Who cares? But there are truths about which there is more at stake. Truths that really matter, that make a difference. It's true right now that there are places in the world where people don't have enough food to eat or don't have a source of clean water to drink. It's true that there are places in the world where Christians are being actively persecuted for their faith. Those types of truths carry a little more weight. Those types of truths matter more, and the reason they matter more is because there's more at stake. Those truths make a difference. Those truths impact lives. And then there's the ultimate truth around which all other, uh, the, the rest of this world orbits, the truth, the ultimate truth, is that there is a divine creator who made this world and who created human beings in his image. And the truth is that that divine creator is good and compassionate and loving, and he created us to worship him. And he loves us and he desires to be in relationship with us. 
That's the truth. The truth. And that gives meaning to all other truths. And Jesus came to bear witness to that truth. He embodies that truth. He is the true revelation of God to us. You look at Jesus, you see what God is like. You listen to Jesus, you hear what God is like. The book of Hebrews tells us Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He came to bring the truth. He came to bear witness to the truth, the truth about what God is like, which is the ultimate truth of the world. He is the truth. He is the standard by which all truth claims are measured. Pilate doesn't understand that, and so he walks out of the room when truth is standing right in front of him. And I just want to make sure we don't make a similar mistake. Jesus is the truth. He came to bear witness to the truth. He has given us the truth in his word. And if we want to be of the truth, to use his phrase, if we want to be of the truth, then we need to listen to his voice and follow his way. Nothing is more important than that. Nothing. Well, Pilate walks away from Jesus. Pilate walks outside. And at least when he walks outside, the next thing out of his mouth, at least he says something true. He says, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. That's what he said when he walked out the door after that interview with Jesus. I find no guilt in him. That is a legal declaration. That's not just an offhand comment. That's a legal judgment. Pilate is the only one that has the political authority to make that statement, and he made it. At that moment, the trial should be over. Done. I find no guilt in him. So everybody go home. Jesus is found not guilty of any political crimes. But Pilate knows that this is not going to satisfy the Jewish leaders. And as we've already noticed, um, Pilate has a history a, 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 a fragile history of dealing with the Jewish people. He's gotten it wrong many times in the past. And so he's treading very cautiously here. And so he says, I find, I, he says the truth, he's, I find no guilt in him. But he also wants to please the Jewish people and not create a riot. And so he thinks he's found a loophole he can find Jesus guilty. Now that's going to satisfy the Jewish council, council the religious leaders, because they want him found guilty. But he can then cash in on this tradition of letting a prisoner go free during Passover, and then he won't have to punish an innocent man. Everybody wins. The Jewish leaders are happy because he found him guilty. But he's okay because he doesn't have to punish a man that he knows is innocent. And he's counting on the crowd to see it his way and to help him out. The only problem is the plan backfires because he misjudges how the crowd is going to respond. Pilate has this guy locked up named Barabbas. Barabbas was, we're told, if you look at the different accounts of what Barabbas has done, he's either he's a robber, he's an insurrectionist, he's a murderer, he's done a lot of bad things. Generally speaking, public citizens are not that sympathetic to characters like that. And then he's got this innocent guy, accused of being king of the Jews. For Pilate, that's a no-brainer. The crowd is going to want to see Barabbas crucified and Jesus released, obviously. One's innocent, one's guilty. 
open and shut case. So he turns the decision over to the crowd, thinking he knows what's going to happen, but he's in for a rude awakening. And again, we know from the other gospel accounts, the crowd screams out for Barabbas, the insurrectionist, to be released, and they scream for Jesus, the innocent man, to be crucified. And now Pilate's in a pickle. And we're going to see how he responds to that situation in the weeks to come, not today. For, the, for this morning, I want to close up our time by thinking about the fact of what happens here, this exchange, Jesus for Barabbas. Barabbas, the criminal, gets released. Jesus, the truth, ends up dying in his place. Barabbas, the the robber, the, the insurrectionist, the murderer. Uh, we don't know the details, but we know he's convicted of murder. We know he's awaiting an execution. He's locked up in a Roman prison. He has no hope of release. He's been declared guilty by the state. He will be punished for his crimes. The only thing left for him to do is await his torture and death. Because of decisions that he has made, it's his fault, he is guilty, he is now hopeless. But something happens so, out of nowhere, right? He wasn't expecting this. He didn't wake up that day expecting what happens. But the door opens. A guard says, Barabbas, the governor wants to see you. Now, for Barabbas, that's probably not good news. That means judgment is awaiting. Justice is not on his side at the moment. He's led off to stand before the governor. When he gets there, he finds another man standing there. This man is all beaten up and bruised. There's a massive, restless crowd outside. Barabbas steps into this scene, and he starts to wonder, what in the world is happening here? What is going on? Am I going to be tossed out to this crowd? Am I going to be trampled and beaten like this guy? What's happening? And now is when the exchange takes place. One of these men is guilty. It would be justice for him to be punished. The other is spotless, perfectly innocent. The way the system works is that one of these guys is going to be declared innocent and released. The other is going to be condemned and crucified all within the next few hours. It just comes down to, is it, is it going to be Barabbas or Jesus? Who's it going to be? And Pilate turns this decision over to the crowd. The crowd calls for the criminal to go free and for the innocent man to be crucified and justice is served. And you say, whoa, that's not justice. Well, what just happened? Well, it is and it isn't justice. On the one hand, Jesus is spotless and blameless. He's the embodiment of the truth. For him to be crucified by his creation in the place of a murderer is not justice. It's a mockery of justice. But the crime has been committed. We cannot go back and undo it. And according to the laws of the universe that Jesus himself has put in place when he created the universe, there are consequences to sin. There's a penalty that must be paid when a criminal commits an act of injustice. That's the way God designed the world, and that is justice. So if the creator of the universe says, I made the world such that there is a penalty for sin, there are consequences for sin, but I am willing to step in and intercede and bear the penalty on behalf of the sinner so that he might be released, then that is a combination of both justice and grace. Justice was served this day, but justice was served on a platter of grace. That's the gospel. 
The gospel doesn't ignore justice. The gospel doesn't run around justice. It serves justice on a platter of grace. On this day, God did not bend the rules of morality. He did not say, oh, forget about it. You're forgiven. That would, have been, that would not have been just. Instead, he enforced the full penalty of the law. That's justice. But then he stepped in and received it on himself. That's grace. And the criminal, the murderer, walked home a free man that day. The criminal goes free because Christ suffered and died. And do you know what the name Barabbas means? Bar is the prefix. It means son of. Son of what? Abbas, Abba, the father. His name means the son of the father. The, 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 the true and eternal son of the father stood in our place and was crucified for us, for our sins, so that we might become adopted sons and daughters of the Father, so that we might become Barabbases. The Son of God died to make us Barabbases, sons and daughters of the Father. Now, when I say that, I'm not making any assumptions about whether or not Barabbas himself, the historical figure, put his faith in Christ and was saved. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. The point is that you and I are Barabbas. We were guilty. We were deserving of punishment. And it would have been right and just for us to pay the penalty ourselves. But someone stepped in and died in our place and satisfied the justice of the law and extended grace and mercy to us so that we could become sons and daughters of the Father. That's the great exchange. I'm Barabbas. You're Barabbas. In order to secure our redemption, the Lord did not compromise the truth. He did not bend the truth. He did not pretend that we were, in fact, innocent when we were not. He didn't flatter us and say, well, you're not that bad. He is the truth. He always maintains the truth, even when the truth is painful, even when the truth is that we are sinners deserving punishment. But combined with that truth was the mercy and grace and compassion that said, even though you're a sinner, even though you're guilty, even though you deserve punishment, I will stand in your place and I will take the penalty on your behalf. That is truth and grace together. And that is what we see on display in this passage. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. I thank you that you came to this world from your kingdom and that you came to bear witness to the truth. Thank you that you brought truth, you proclaimed truth, you lived truth, that you are, in fact, the truth. We recognize that in this world, uh, it's a mixed crop. Our fields are mixed with truth and falsehood. And it is hard to tell the difference. And it is hard to know what is true and what is a lie and what is a half-truth. So we thank you that you came embodying the truth, bringing the truth. And I pray that those of us who are of the truth would hear your voice and would believe your voice and that we would follow your voice, that we would be people of the truth. Pray these things in your name. Amen.